0: Thank you. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. And uh, today we are welcoming, uh, I would say, growing up, one of my favorite, uh, he portrayed one of my favorite characters, uh, Don, in the the Superman movies, one and two. And for every reason, I always resonated uh, with Jack O'Halloran because his character equally menacing, yet his way of making that character affable and just this way he portrayed his character always resonated with him. and so. When I started this podcast, I knew Jack was one of the guests I needed to have. And with his incredible, fascinating boxing career uh, in his acting and his book. Like, I'm I'm just very fortunate to have you here today, Jack.
1: My pleasure. Sure.
0: Now, how have you, uh, I know the last year or so has been kind of crazy for everyone. And I know you um, do some other stuff besides acting and stuff, but how has this kind of been for you kind of jumping forward to the future?
1: Well, you know, it's given me an opportunity. We've got two more books we're getting ready to put out, so I've spent some time, uh, you know, preparing them to be done because we're getting ready to do a mini series uh, on on the first book. That's going to turn into a series, so we have so much material that it, it's given us a chance to really vamp it up and put it out. We were originally going to do a film, but there's just too much material to put into two hours on the screen right so we decided the mini series was much more affable and, and and more informative to people uh as to what we want to tell you know what i found your book actually i have a stack of books that
0: i gotta go through and usually i can't read that fast because i get absorbed with everything going on but researching your book and your history why i want to read your book is because not only the boxing and this other film and acting and stuff like that but your relationship with your father uh albert who was a former Gambino crowd family boss and i guess my first question was dealing with that did that kind of help you or propel you to jump into boxing where maybe there you had to get your anger out and kind of how that relationship start with that
1: i you know uh boxing it's amazing i i I started in sports in in football, um, and I was uh, when I when I was in in my era of football. You had to graduate college before you could play pro ball. Right. Uh, that you know, and if you didn't graduate, if you, your class if your class had to graduate, even if you didn't graduate, your class had to graduate, which I found to be a much better way of people maturing into their bodies to play a sport right like professional football you know i think some of these kids come out of college way too soon that's why there's so many injuries and stuff you know their bodies the education
0: aspect too like the, the full education support too i think
1: yeah i i just think that they should stay in school to be my you know but right. i left school early and, and 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 i was picked up by the new york jets but you couldn't play so we played in a semi-pro league well, it was like a farm team you know on the east right. coast where you played a couple games a week so keep your levels up and uh, and there was a lot of great ball players the Christie brothers and different people who played with the Jets in the future uh that played on these teams so we had good comp- competition you know what I mean and then when it came time to play um Philadelphia had a had a really great team and, and a lot of friends of mine down there. And I, you know, I, I, I talked to the people in the jets. I said, you know, I'd like to get down and, and give a shot down in Philly. And they said, well, you know, you've got a home here. If, you, if it doesn't work out, come on back up. And they did fill it up. By the time I went to Philly, they had a new owner Jerry Wallman, who was a really nice young man and, 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 and enthusiastic, but he hired a guy named Joe Q Harrick who traded a, Championship football team away in four months. I mean, <laughs> how do you trade Sonny Jurgensen away? You know, and he and Tom and McDonald, and he traded Lyman to Green Bay for older guys, and I mean, just unbelievable stuff. And <laughs> I was, I come out of a meeting with Timmy Brown one day, and, and he walked right by us, and I turned and I said, Kuharik, you don't say hello to people." Well, I said, "Well, you know what? Take this team and stick it." And Timmy said, "While you're at it, trade me." <laughs> so, some people in Philadelphia, friends of mine, you know, Ali had just won the title. And I said to a guy, you know, I could beat that guy. And they said, you know, that's a good idea. And I wound up <laughs> in the gym. So I was like 23 years old before I tied a glove on, but, you know, I was a pretty tough person in the street. So, you know, they, um, and I went in the gym and, and, and started training. And six months later, I couldn't play. I couldn't box amateur because in those days you couldn't do professional and amateur. If you right. were a professional in one sport, you were a professional across the board. So uh, I had no amateur career. I went right into professional box, which uh, which was kind of good. I liked it. Yeah. One of the What's kind of fascinating is that obviously you're a
0: very large uh human being and one of our followers lori brought up a good question she was like does that height advantage affect you in fighting and training whereas maybe your opponent's smaller or equal height does that affect how you trade
1: not really you know i i was i, I was very fortunate in, you know when i played football and i weighed about 285 290 and i ran a 4 640 that's you know <laughs> so i always had a lot of speed in my in my abilities and, and and I had some great coaches, so I learned a lot of uh, agility, you know, and I had a lot of agility in my body. And uh, so boxing, I just lost a lot of weight and came down to like two thirty five uh, somewhere in that Wake area. And so I was I was big and I was fast and 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 I could fight, you know. I uh, had some great trainers, and um, boxing came very natural to me. Right. It was a. Uh, it was a. Uh, the sad part was that, I would think I was sixteen and zero, and they I went to do a physical, and and the guy, doctor said to me, uh, you you have a, you have a disease called acromegalic, and you shouldn't oh. be boxing at all. He said, How do you even get in the ring? And I said, what, what are you talking about? He said, It's a tumor of the pituitary gland, which causes a lot of you know growth hormone in your body and 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 drains your body down. and causes depression and all kinds of stuff. And I said, uh, yeah, well, guess what? I have a great day job, so I think I'll keep it. And (laughs) the problem with myself was that I had a great ability that I, and, and I kicked myself because I abused a great ability by not, I would train four days for a fight. And anytime they offered me a fight like in Ohio or this place, I would jump at it because I would do other business. I was doing my yep. father's world, you know, in the unions and stuff like that. So it gave me an excuse to travel. And, and in my father's world, you know, you had to have a day job. Yes. To keep the law and order away from your doorstep, you know? <laughs> right. To show that you had a, a proper way of making money. And and boxing gave me a, a, an opportunity to travel around the world. And, and I wasn't so much... <clears throat> I got out of the, the thought pattern of, of winning a title because of the notoriety and everything, and it was a kind of a mixed mixed message in myself. So, if if uh, if I blew a, a decision somewhere, most of the time it would be a hometown deal where you know, we're boxing in somebody's backyard, and if you went the right. if you went the distance, you 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 were jeopardy of losing decisions. But whenever I went and trained, like for a month or something um i never I, I beat a lot of ranked fighters so, so it gave me a lot of recognition and, and ali and i were signed to fight four times i mean he uh he and i became very good friends and i, I remember i um he was when he fought norton he was supposed to fight me in california right because i was the california heavyweight champion and uh And we had made a deal. He and I, you know, he, here's a fun story. You know, he uh, called me on the phone one day and he said, you got to do me a favor. I said, what do you mean do you a favor? You sign a contract to fight me. I'll do you any favor you want. He said, I don't know. We're going to get today. He said, but you you have to do me his favor first. I said, what's the favor? He said, you're fighting my brother, Rockman Ali next week. I said, Rockman's your brother. He said, yeah. And you got to get him out of boxing because it's an embarrassment to me. And I said, I, are you kidding me? He said, no, no, that's my brother. So I said, oh, wow, I better go in the gym a couple of days and work out. So, right. And I did, and I, I, I stopped him, and he never fought again. I, I mean, I, I hurt him bad. He, he never fought again.
0: What did Ali say when you told him you're, he was kind of the inspiration why you wanted to jump boxing when you saw playing football? Say that again? When you made that transition from football to boxing, you you talked about how uh, you used to look at Ali and said, "Man,
1: I could fight that guy and I could win."
0: Did you ever tell Ali that story?
1: Oh yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) We, in fact, when I I went, uh, they had taken my license away briefly in California for organized crime, which was all bull. They were just politics. They were fishing, but I got a phone call from Detroit, from Michigan, to fight Alvin Blue Lewis who had just went 13 rounds with Ali in Ireland and they were trying to make another title fight. So there, he came back, he beat Ernie Torelli, beat another guy. And if he got by me, they would give them an excuse to get another Ali fight. So the guys, I said, well, can I get a license? And they said, absolutely. We'll give you a license. Will you take the fight. I said, absolutely. And so I, I, it was like two weeks away from the fight. So I flew out to Michigan and, and, um, And I was in pretty good shape because I was running every day, but I gained a few pounds. I was up about 45, 50, something like that. Right. Now you've also fought George Foreman,
0: uh, Manuel Ramos, Cleveland Williams, all these famous legendary boxers. Do you still have times when you kind of sit back today and kind of be like, you still feel a punch, like say George hit you, or the roar of a crowd from a fight? Does that ever kind of leave your conscience, those type of reactions?
1: Yeah, the the foreman fight uh, kind of irked me. George and I are pretty good friends. You know, I heard him bad in the second round, and, and and again, I only trained like eight days for that fight, which is crazy, because considering the legendary status that he is in. Well, that's what I was going to say. I was telling you a story about 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 Detroit. Alvin Blue Lowe's was ranked number two in the world, and uh, and I went out to Detroit and I destroyed him. I mean, I beat him really bad, ten out of ten. Uh, 10 out of 10, I just, I, I gave a terrible beat. And I went up to camp to see Ali right afterwards. And I, and and uh, and he and I uh, got into a, a, a comical thing for the press and all that stuff. And, and then I sat down, I said to him, and he said to me, if I give you a title fight, are you really going to try and beat me? I said, let me tell you something. For the very first time in my career, I'll go away to camp like you do. And train the way you're training. And when you come in a ring, you better bring a gun with you. <laughs> and he said, two stakes, please. You know. He, he was a, we, we we had a great rapport here and I he was a, I liked I liked Muhammad a lot. He was he was a good friend and he was he was a tremendous athlete. No matter yep. what sport he would have ever tried, he would have been great at. Right. He's just a great athlete. And when you talk to him one on one, he was a whole different person. You know, Muhammad was a—he was a very bright guy, and he was—and uh, he knew exactly what he was doing. And, you know, it's very sad that the reason what killed him and what, what tore his body up, everybody thought it was from boxing, but his camp in Deer Lake up in Pennsylvania was right next to a mink farm, where they sprayed wow. for rodents and everything. So he went out and did his road work and everything. He was breathing these toxins in, and it actually poisoned his system and, and it deteriorated his system to where it appeared he had Parkinson's, but he really didn't. Um, wow. And he was, uh, you know, he used to sit, and I, I, I remember telling, talking to him one time, I said, you know, why is it you always look like you're falling asleep when you're out a fight and people are, he said, well, Jack, I had my motor symptoms in my mouth. Is or not operating properly because of what was going on with his body, he said. And all these guys chatting at me one after the other, he said. So I just pretended like I was asleep <laughs> just a kid. <laughs> so I wouldn't have to answer them so quickly. I love that. Yeah, he uh, was what, a smart guy. One of the crazier, I
0: guess, cool things, uh, you have people like Tyson who want to come back and fight, uh, Lennox Lewis, um, uh, Evander Holyfield. Now, for you, when you retire. Was there like, does that fighting spirit ever leave a boxer or the uh, people that in your world of fighting MMA or boxing, do they, do you ever lose that fighting spirit or is that well, tough to kind of surprise? What I
1: did after I retired, you know, I, I was in the gym all the time uh, gotcha. working out because it was a great way of working out. And and I was in, I went into the film business right after I yep. retired from boxing and they had tried to get me into the film business all the way back to 1966. Uh, when the, I turned down the Thomas Crown Affair with, with, uh, wow. with my dear friend uh, because I really loved Steve McQueen. He was a good kid. They did the Thomas Crown Affair in Boston and I was undefeated and he wanted me that to, we, we took care of him and he, he got to come get on us. So I turned it down Then I turned down the Great White Hope in 1968 wow. after I knocked out Manuel Ramos. They offered me the Great White Hope and that was put together by Raymond Patriarca. Who was trying to get me off the streets, and they were going to send wow. me to Spain for six months, and I and I said, "Wait a minute! I, I just beat the number two heavyweight. I, I think I'm going to get another shot at Ali," and they, uh, so I turned the picture down. But in '76, when I retired, '75, they offered me "Farewell, My Lovely" with Robert Mitchum and Moose uh, Boy, Great role. And I decided, yeah, and I decided it was time to play. So I went out and did a screen test and. Mitchum said, it's either him or I don't do the movie. So I blame Mitchum for it all, you know? <laughs> One of our uh, uh,
0: Spirit Talk supporters, Rebecca, and you kind of talked about, it, but she wanted to know if when you, the transition, was it an easy transition to acting with because of your sheer size and your ath- athletic ability where you can portray these larger than life characters? Is that part of the, why people wanted to bring you into filming and movies or is this like a
1: natural transition for you? I, you know, doing sport you have great timing you know and timing is important in in the acting business and um having robert mitchum as a mentor right was better than any any schools i could have went to or any acting classes or i mean he was the he was great he just took me by the hand and, and showed me where because I had never done, you know, all I had done is a few commercials and stuff like that when I was boxing, um, but uh, and acting came very came very easy to me, and you know, and the whole trick of acting is, the camera loved me, and if the camera likes you. You got you're in you're in Lake Flynn, you know, and you just, you know, Mitchum taught me something in the very beginning. He said, you know, don't ever let me catch you doing what thousands of people do out here acting. Just be yourself take right. this character, put it in you and walk down the street like this character, be you and and, and that worked out very well. you know just uh, it was um, yeah, it was magical. I, uh, I enjoy the acting business and you know we, we did quite well on it so it worked out pretty well, you know when
0: the, the the first time I ever saw you and kind of really appreciated the sheer magnitude is non from the superman and Superman 2 and what I find interesting about that is not only physically it's you it's imposing but you did something to the character that made me want to be like man I actually sympathize with this guy because he's kind of childish but he's just superhuman how much of a role or how much of a the daughter, the director at the time, how much control did he give you of that character, and was the well, script I, like? You
1: know, when we first talked about, it, we were I was doing a film down in uh, Spain called March or Die, and um, with Classic. Gene Hackman. Yep. And and they flew us up to London to see Donner because they wanted me to do Superman, and I had turned down the 007 picture and uh, Jaws, right? Yeah, I turned yep. it down, and so I I didn't really liked the script and i didn't want to get caught into that kind of a character all doing those kind of characters all the time and when they talked about superman and and donner and i talked about the character Nan, whom they had lobotomized he was a scientist the guy he was a great scientist and they lobotomized him because of trying to control zod and ursa and all that stuff and um so i said you know he said, how do you feel about playing a mute character? I said, I, I embrace that because Jackie Gleason was a friend of mine and he did a film called Gigo that he won an Oscar for. Doing right. Facial expressions and, you know, of a deaf mute. So I said, I really embraced the fact of wanting to do this. I said, and Nan's a great character because Zod is, is a man, he, a killer, you know is a real yes. vicious guy and, and Sarah is a man-eater somebody has to relate to kids so i'm going to take this big brutish guy and i'm going to play him like a child yep. learning how to use his eyes and learning how to how to try to talk and stuff like that and it worked out pretty well you know no it's uh it's
0: just really cool and so when you when you jump into that set obviously you have the red ship with gene hackman uh but with christopher reeve and the whole superman brand was this something that was i can only imagine that was superhero movies being as big as they are that superman for me that was my movie growing up like that was the only superhero movie i knew of and so was how important is it to be part of a legacy like that the the old golden age of comic
1: books superman one and two were 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 terrific the best the best and and i'll tell you had they let donner finish two i don't know if you've ever seen the donner cut i uh, have with, it's got more of marlon brando correct much better yeah it's a much yes. better film and you know donner was just magic donner was a gr- is a great director and, and he lived eat and slept superman right but they didn't want to pay him you know the uh they, they, i mean how do you cut marlon brando out of a picture you know, <laughs> at the time get, i don't get it right they didn't want to pay him the points they already paid him i mean he got paid to do the movie and they paid him four million dollars for 11 days work you know At that time which was a lot of money and and marlon was i loved marlon brando brando was brando was a lot of fun and he (laughs) i'll tell you a funny story (laughs) he's sitting they're working we the first 11 days that we worked was with brando because they needed to get brando on film to get the money from the bank okay yep and they're working about we're working about six days and and they're having dinner with Brando, the Pierce Spangler and the Salkines and all, and Donner. And uh, and they're having dinner one night. And, and Brando said, you know, we're really working really hard. He said, hey, we should take a day off or something. And and Donner was agreeing with him. He said, and they're <laughs> kicking Donner under the table.
0: We got to pay this guy. Crazy.
1: <laughs> no, and, and Pierce Spangler said, oh, Marlon, we, we, can't, we can't afford to do that. And Brando said, what are you talking about? He said, well, it costs us a lot of money every day in production if we don't film. And Brando said, how much it costs a day? And they said, well, it's about $350,000. So Brando said, well, you know what? Let's take a day off. I'll pay. That's <laughs> awesome. They, they almost fell under the table. You know, <laughs> of course, they didn't do it, but you know, it was a, but Brando was that kind of guy. You know, he was a practical yep. joker. He was a he was a, It's such a. You know, I've been very fortunate in my career to have worked with people like Mitchum and Brando, and Hackman, and you know Omar Sharif and Jimmy Coburn, and you know I worked with a lot of great actors in my life, and it's a, And it was such a pleasure and such a learning experience, you know, with every one of them. It was. A, we just had a lot of fun. It's cool and to hear. Superman was a great experience. Right.
0: And your relationship with Christopher Reeve, how was that um, in terms of just him being the big star he was at the time? Uh, was there any type of a like, clash of ego per se?
1: Well, you, you have to understand something. That was his first picture. Oh, I did not know that. never right. did anything before Superman. Right. And okay. he, I mean, he, he did some soap op- operas and he, he uh, did a couple plays. And he was a graduate of Juilliard. And you know, when he came on the set for Superman, he was 175 pounds. And, uh, and he they, they, they took a guy, uh, I forget the guy's name, it's terrible. He played, uh, he was in the, in the Star Wars movies that played the Jedi guy. He was a bodybuilder. And, and, and I talked to him, I said, you know, they're gonna hire you to build him up, but you don't wanna bulk him because he has an ego. So you want to cut him like Steve Reeves. I don't know if you remember Steve Reeves. Yes. It yep. was only 198 pounds, but he was defined. His body was cut perfect. I said, so you want to do that with Christopher? Because when he puts that costume on, he is not going to want to wear any kind of stuff underneath to make him look like he's built or anything of that nature. Just naked. So they they did that. And he put on like 20 pounds and, and, he, and he was all natural for himself. You know what I mean? Right. Donner got a performance out of him that he never gave again. It was never the same with what Donner, I mean, the, the fact that they, they could have never got rid of Donner if Christopher Reeve would have stood up and said, no Donner, no me. Right. You understand? The original thing was to do 10 Superman, like the oh, like wow. Indiana Jones, they had a whole thing set up. So the saltcons really with their greed, you know, shot themselves in the foot. Because Richard Donner would have done six, seven Superman. It would have been a whole different franchise. And they, uh, and and Christopher didn't do that. He, you know, and that's why Hackman didn't come back. I almost didn't go back. Um, But, you know, it it was like night and day working with Lester to Donner. Right. You know, we did what we did in the film. You know, you got to understand Superman was the very first American superhero. Yeah because he was true American superhero, you know? And, and it all f- disturbs me to watch how they've changed and made the films darker and darker and darker. Because in our Superman version, Christopher would have all, he always looked out after people. He wasn't out killing people and stuff like that. It was about putting people in jail and, you know, doing things the all American way, you know? Right. So they changed the, too many things, I think, and, and it's, uh, Making it darker like the rest of this, like even Batman, they made darker, right? And they just keep getting more and more darkness in what they're doing. So, you know, we well, you mentioned um, that daughter cut, and you, the color, it just, it's when
0: you put on like a really big screen and watch that cut, the color just pops the reds, the blues. It's just, even when you're, you're, you guys are in your Kryptonian outfits, the black, the uh, suit things, like it's just amazing how much you could see the whole world going on. Whereas today, while I do love these movies, it's kind of tough to see the intricacies of the seeds and the different
1: characters. Well, I'll tell you something. The technology that we did is what they're starting to use now, LED on LED. We <laughs> broke technical rules when we did Superman. And, and, and again, here's the Sulkines. These guys that had this technology, because we shot, this we had no CIG in that movie we actually shot VistaVision on VistaVision. We had one huge screen, like 70 foot, and three pole arms came out of it. And with body molds at the end, and we laid in the body mold, and it gave us the motions of like we're flying, you know, and they shot us into the film so we could fly under bridges, around buildings when we did the fight scenes, and it looked fantastic. You know, like no wires. I mean, how are these guys doing that? And it wasn't CGI. It was really shooting us right in the film, and it worked phenomenal. It took a long time, filming-wise, but it came out terrific. I and mean, that's why, forty years later, those films still stand wow, out. Just know? awesome, and and much better than the CGI junk they're doing today. You know.
0: Yeah. No, it I mean, does. It, the real performance, real actors, real action. Yeah. It's, I mean, uh, it
1: really. I mean, it was. It was just a. It was a great experience, to be honest with you. You know, it was. Uh, we had a lot of fun. Now, when you do a movie like
0: uh, Mob Boss, is that, and I, I guess I'm kind of curious, like obviously with your father's background and the stuff with the unions and the, the mafia stuff, but when you do a film that's like called Mob Boss with about the mafia and stuff, is there any type of thing where it's like, uh, hey, can you bring in your family member to kind of go over the scene to maybe make sure this looks
1: authentic? No, nah, Mob Boss was, I did a favor for somebody, you know? uh it was a, it was a low budget deal, and, and the guy was a, a good guy and he came to me and said you know would you help us out I said sure you know I wasn't doing anything I said yeah and, and it uh the uh it, it, what it did was I, I was in the process of writing my book yes and yeah. uh and when we do this mini series it's going to blow people away because we're going to tell the truth about a lot of things that has happened in our society and how people got thrown under the bus and the reason why, you know. Right. The things that, uh, that, and, and a lot of people said to me, geez, Jack, aren't you worried about that? I said, no. I said, I think <laughs> it's time that the people know what really went on and what's going on, you know, in our society. And how the drug business really changed a lot of things in a lot of people's lives and how much the government was involved in it. It right. wasn't just organized crime guys. I mean, they, they, it was the government themselves, you know, because uh, of the lucrative, there was so much money involved uh, that, uh, you know, and everybody wanted their hand in the action. And, and, they, and it, it, what people don't understand is that, you know, if you look at all the stuff that's going on just in the last several years, the idea is to confuse everybody. To keep yeah, the public just, confused, Right. You understand, and and they've got everybody so media trained today. People sit in front of their television watching the news, which is not there to tell you anything. It's there to win awards. They don't really tell you the truth about what's going on in the world. You know, they tell you what they want you to know. Right, and and that's very sad. You know, the people don't really get the truth, and you know, it's uh, it's like you see kids texting back and forth and and all uh artificial intelligence going all around with social media and everything so people don't really get to sit down with people and understand who they really are and that's why so many people are being scammed and so many people are being preyed upon because they're not knowing who they're really dealing with right does that make any sense to you right no it does you know and it's uh, and it's really sad and you to, to separate people the way they're doing is ludicrous i think but you know it's, there uh, uh,
0: i think it was denzel washington a couple of years ago there he was doing press for the movie fences they they started talking about some political stuff and uh they asked him about the media and press he goes well he goes what he's noticed is that the media now is a race to be first not to be correct and it's just fascinating that you get through all this stuff out there and then, but no one knows what the truth is. No one gets to hear the truth. And if you do think differently,
1: you get shunned upon or canceled. And it's just so sad. Uh, it's it's like this whole Black Life Matters bullshit. You know, it's uh, you know, when I was a kid, and we were, and I was raised down in Southwest Philadelphia, and 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 we had racial problems. There right. were racial problems in the Jewish neighborhoods, in the Irish neighborhoods, in the Italian neighborhoods. You know, if you went into one neighborhood, you weren't supposed to be in. You had a problem being there. And, you know, and, uh, and, and but it wasn't escalated like it is today, okay? And, and, like, like you asked me a question about whether I ever lost a thirst for boxing after I got out of boxing. So, what I did was, you know, going to the gym every day, I spotted a kid that they threw out of the cronk gym. Uh, he was a huh. super middleweight, Frankie Lyles. And they sent him out to the Goosens in L.A. And I saw him come in the gym and I watched this kid train a couple of days and, and I sat him down and we had a conversation. And I told him, I said, you know, if you do everything I tell you and explain to you and show you, I'll make you super middleweight champ of the world. And he said, wow. So I created Freddie Roach, who's a very world renowned trainer today. Right. he was living in, in uh, Mickey Rourke's gym, wow. and I put a corner together. And I took this young man who was a black kid, and I moved him into my house on Mulholland Drive, and trained him <laughs> properly. I took him out every morning and taught him how to run and thought him. I got him in the best condition, and and taught him things that he never would have learned before. And you know, and he won the super middleweight championship of the world, and he fought. He went right. We we went right down the list. One, two, three, four, five of all the contenders and beat them all for a Bears. few years. You know, and uh, so I gave. What I did was, I gave back to boxing. Yep, and showed that I had the ability to win a title if I really wanted to. You know, right. Uh, with this young man, but also people said to me, "Jack, you have a black guy living in your house." I said, "What is wrong with you people?" Right. You know? I mean, we all come up in the streets and yeah, there was animosities here and there, but, you know, I think all those barriers for me were broken down through sport. You're playing football and different sports that you play with, you know, and you got interfaced with, with great athletes who were color meant no difference, you know, to me at that time. I mean, especially in the boxing world. I mean, my God, you know, and and then Ali and I became really super friends. I mean, we, uh, and George, George Foreman and I are good friends and, yep. and and most of the fighters that I fought, uh, we, we, you never, you always have some kind of a camaraderie, whether you win or lose or whatever, you know, there's always a, a, a warm feeling there for each other because it's competition, you know. So I, I, I watch what's going on in the world and I just shake my head, you know, I mean, I remember Will Chamberlain was a good friend of mine, and, and, and a lot of other sports and athletes that, that I knew. And you know, I, I just don't, I I just don't get what all this racism bull is about. Now they're doing it with the Orientals, and they want to start a big calamity there. You know, and it's uh, it's just, it's, I think it's it's being driven by bad people. Yep.
0: No, I definitely think the media loves that uh, dividing, the divisiveness. Um, I, it, I guess it goes back to we lost kind of humanity and empathy towards the common man or woman. And uh, that's a really cool story you share. Like I had no idea that
1: uh, your relationship with Freddie Roach like that. That's that's super rad. Freddie, Freddie start. I started Freddie out. Freddie was uh, he was living in Mickey Rourke's gym. He was, you know, and he was working with a couple of good fighters. But I gave him world recognition. Because we traveled the world with Frankie Lyles, we fought all over the place, and uh, and the And I let Freddie take, you know, come up. I, you know, I, I didn't need, I didn't need the, the the splash in the, you know, of being the greatest trainer in the world. I I did it because I wanted to prove that I could do it. Right. You know, I didn't I didn't stay in the gym. I could have Freddie and I could have formed a partnership, and and I and I went in the gym several times with him to help him with Pacquiao and other stuff like that. Because I had a way of, uh, you know, of moving. And, and I understood the way, the game of boxing, of certain things that people should do. And that's why Freddie, you know, Frankie Lyles became a very, very good fighter because he had a style that we taught him and showed right. him. And and, and I didn't, didn't impose something on him. I took his natural ability and honed it. He had the ability, just no one ever showed him. Right. Different ways of moving side to side and, and how boxing really is, you know, a very leveraged sport and, and things that you do on your footwork and how you move from one side to the other. And you don't have to be jumping all over the place and stuff. And uh, and Frankie became a very good fighter. And he, like I said, he won the Super Middleweight Championship of the world. And, you know, so I gave back to boxing and then Freddie became an icon he's like considered one of the greatest trainers in boxing today right and and he's and he's a dear friend and he's a super kid and he deserves everything he's done trust me now what
0: drives you to this day to still have that mentality where to not only give back but to keep pushing yourself is there do you have an end game in your mind what you want your legacy to be are you still
1: striving for that yeah we're we're getting ready to uh, like like we're gonna do the family Legacy series and we're building a studio in Nevada, which awesome. is going which is a four million square foot studio and, and everything yeah. under one roof for the very first time, which should have been done in Hollywood years ago. I mean they had all the space with Universal and with Warner Brothers and they, and they they' never utilized it properly, you know. So to put everything under one roof where I don't have to go running across town to get this done or running across town to get that done, where everything's at my fingertips, you know, Uh, and to put all water body tank and a water tank and a a screen that will handle up to five dimension, which has got to be a lot larger than than the the average screen. And to put all the sound stages at NC-25 soundproof, that everything you're doing is what you call cost effective and helping to keep budgets in a proper perspective and allow people to be creative to the max without running all around and worrying about this and that and spending extra money for this because you you, you know, time factor, you know? Right. Because time is money in movies, you know what I mean? Right. So it's uh, it's giving them a place for the creative people to become creative. The problem with the film industry today is that a lot of the studios are run by MBAs and they have no creativity. I mean, right. look at the films that they're doing. A lot of them are, you know, are such, they're so bad because they're not complete. They, they just winging stuff out. Well, there's remakes of remakes now movies That's that came out doing. 10 years remakes ago. They're
0: remaking it. It's just, it's 100%, very, right.
1: Exactly.
0: It's like a, and there's it's some almost... great
1: talented writers that, never get exposed because they're remaking everything
0: it's just because it, i think creativity is such a life force for everyone um but to have that kind of your industry to have that kind of like shunted it's kind of my because yeah i could think of idea ideas i would love to see in movies but there are professionals out there with these same grandiose ideas that should be out there it's it's kind of cool here. hear you say that you're going to try to do what you can to kind of fuel this creative kind well, of thinking. Well,
1: we're going you know, to put everything under one roof, and then we're building a smart city right next to it that will handle 30,000 people, yeah. all employees of a studio, okay? Yep. Where they only have 15, 20 minutes to go to work. Right now, if I do a picture at <laughs> Warner Brothers, I live in Redondo Beach, i got an hour and a half, two hours traffic. Right, to one get way. To and from the studio, one way, you know? <laughs> So imagine the technicians who have moved inland in California because it's cheaper living, how far they got to travel every day too. So by the time they get to work, they're frazzled, you know, because yep. of the traffic. And if so, it takes them a while to calm down. So if you're going to be cost effective, you want people's minds sharp and and what they're doing and, and to make product the way it should be made. And it's, uh, you know, there's not... There's not, here's a good example. There's not a water tank in LA to do a water picture on the, there was a tank they built down in Baja for Titanic, Jim Cameron's tank, and that's gone because it didn't have enough work to keep it there. Wow. So there's, we did Superman, we did it over at Pinewood Studios because of the 007 stage. It was a huge stage. They should have had a stage like that in LA. The last water body, water tank was the Esther Williams pool at MGM. When we did King Kong, the log scenes and all was at the Esther Williams pool, you know, right. where they could shoot things like that. And it just, and this is the laxity of Hollywood. They, you know, there should have been, there should be a water tank here. Right. There should be this, there should be that. And there's not, you have to travel over here to do that. You got to travel over there to do it. And, and that's just not cost effective. You know, to spend two hundred million dollars on a picture is ludicrous. It's yeah, it's absolutely. Some of those budgets ludicrous. are
0: crazy. So seriously, well, that's
1: just that's a lot of thievery as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. You know, now we before, shot Superman. We did Superman on a fifty million dollar budget and they stole from that. <laughs> you understand? I crazy. did a picture called King Kong, which had a lot of mechanical parts with that monkey. Yep. You understand? And the picture cost 36 million. And it should have cost 16. They had four producers on the set that you know, guys making decisions that they didn't know what they were doing. So when you every time you reshoot something, it costs you four Nobody. times as much because you got to come back, reschedule, redo this, redo that. You know, I remember Jesse Jesse Lang was sitting in the in, in the ape's hand when the, when she was at the waterfall thing, and the ape. His finger came down and was touching her, her head and stuff like that. Well, the string, the string broke and the finger, and the finger fell and hit her on top of the head. Thought we lost Jesse. You know, it was uh, <laughs> accidents like that that shouldn't happen happen. You know, right. because of laxity. And it's, I mean, it's just um, it's, everything's a learning experience in life. You know, and, and I learned a lot in the film industry working for the big films that I did and the technical things that we did. And to understand that that technology should all be under one roof where you don't have to go flirting all over the place trying to get something done. So that's what we're going to do in Nevada. I like that.
0: Uh, Before I let you go, Jack, I know you're on Facebook, but if people want to find
1: and follow up what you're doing, is Facebook your only social media uh, you use? At the time, yeah. Now they're trying to get me in this Instagram stuff and, you know not being a techie guy myself. You know? Right. But there's some people that are, that are techie-wise that, that want to, because uh, I've got like three or four projects that I'm getting ready to do films before I wrap it up. And uh, and they say, wow, we're going to, I've never really pushed myself in, in, uh, in the, uh, never had public relation guys that did all. This. So now all right, of a sudden right. these, there's, Friends of mine, you you're gonna we're we're, we're we're taking you out, and we're gonna do this and do that, and you know, so I, I've got this PR campaign that's gonna do all this jiggermogog, you know, but uh, makes me kind of laugh to be honest with you. you no, know? but uh, again, you have this incredible
0: legacy, and you're still building that legacy. I think I think what these people want to do is help people uh, maybe appreciate you more or learn about what you've got coming out. I think it's uh, whatever we
1: can do to help you. Um, this has been a well, total blast that that's that's why i'm doing family legacy because it, there's a lot of truth about things that needs to be told about the whole kennedy deal and about different parts of history that have been falsified in people's eyes you know and there's truisms that that don't really slur anybody it just opens people's eyes up to you know that they really do have something to say about our society, you know, and, and, and America is a great country. Americans got to stand up and take it back and yep. they've allowed their country to be given away, you know? I mean, look at our educational system, my God. You know, when I was a kid in school, you know, it was like 86 to 90% literacy in America. Today, you're lucky if you got 40%. You know, right. it's, it's very sad that, that the education level has dropped so badly in such a great country, you know, that people don't have the opportunities to really learn what they should be learning. I mean, when I first wrote the book, I gave it to four high school kids to read. And they came back to me a couple of weeks later and said, how come they never taught us this in school? Because <laughs> they went to the library and looked up the things that I had written about names of people and stuff And it's all there. It's in the libraries, you know, all the history of our country and the people involved in it is all there. You know, it's like my father, my father was assassinated in 57 because he was against the drug business and he controlled all the harbors. And he said, you're not bringing that stuff under my watch. We didn't sign up for this, you know. If we touch it, our children will touch it. It'll be the downfall of the families. In in The Godfather, when they went to Brando and asked him to get in the drug business and he gave them that, that reason for not doing it, he declined. That's what my father said. So they assassinated him. They tried to kill Frank Costello and then they assassinated Albert because they didn't want the drug business. And there were other Dons that didn't want the drug business. To kill a person like albert anastasia who was the glue he held everything together right. he was the most feared guy in, in an organized crime and, and and when they took him away it gave them rights to rule and run so they started killing each other in new york over drugs and it's just kind of foolish you know sad very sad but uh Jack, this was a blast.
0: Uh, thank you for this. it a good time, man. Huh? Awesome. Thank you. Enjoy the uh, water behind you at the palm trees. And, uh, <laughs> Very nice day out here. Tell you yeah, too. it looks, looks windy. Thank you all for checking out this week's episode. Once again, I'm John. If you like what you heard and saw today, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And check out our brand new merch store with hats, coffee mugs, T-shirts, other cool stuff coming down the pipeline. Again, thank you all for support. Be safe and see you next week. I'm Matt Kundel, host of the Sound Off podcast. The show about podcast and broadcast.